I wanted to remind you, and if you're new here with us today, what we're talking about when we talk about this concept and idea of wisdom. There's really three parts of wisdom that we could look at. We titled it this, The Art of Living Well, Good, and Godly. Well, good, and godly. Maybe a simpler way to say that as I was thinking about it is we could say we're living smart, right, doing the right thing, and in a God-honoring way. That's really what wisdom is. And I think all three of these components are really necessary to understand Proverbs and understand what's going on. Because even sometimes animals are said to be wise. Now, animals aren't necessarily thinking about God. They're not necessarily following Christ. We wouldn't imply that. But there's actually critters in the Bible that are called wise. And we looked at these four last week, Proverbs 30. We have the ant, the rock badger, the locust, and the lizard. David's favorite, the last one, the lizard. These animals are, they're wise, and we could even say in a more if you uh, study theology a little bit in a common grace sort of way, you can have wisdom. This w- grace that isn't necessarily saving for you, but it does imply wisdom. The world was created by wisdom. We'll learn later in Proverbs chapter 8. And those who live by wisdom live with the grain in which the world was made. So it's important for us to get all three of these pieces. Proverbs is just absolutely chocked full of these nuggets of wisdom, and I would be quick to say they would do some good for you even if you didn't love the Lord. Something like Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, uh, and, and we can understand that in a conversation. You don't have to necessarily be a confessional Christian to understand how that works. So wisdom really cuts across the grain of life, but what we really want to focus on is a full inclusive view of wisdom that's including all three of these characteristics, living well, good, and godly. So this morning, we finished the introduction, really, to the book of Proverbs. We're going to look at verses 8 through 19 in our first part, and then we will pick up verses 20 through 20 through 33. These are really two sections, but we're going to combine them as we look at these this morning. Proverbs chapter 1, I want to read verses 8 through 19, and then in a little bit, we'll come back and read 20 down through 33. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods, and we shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us, we will have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way of them, hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood." For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. We're going to look today at the profile of a fool. What does it look like to be a fool? I started to title this sermon today, How to Be a Fool, because that's really what this is all about. Obviously, the implication is we don't want to be that. But the profile of a fool, what does it look like to be a foolish person? 
Number one, the fool rejects instruction. There are so many proverbs that are about this. The fool rejects instruction. I know this is a lot of points and might make some of y'all nervous. We'll get through it, though. Notice how it starts out in verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. It's interesting here that the father and mother are both mentioned, and a number of commentators point out that this is kind of unique, actually, in ancient literature, because the wife is included, the woman, the mother of the home is is included, and this really sets the Bible apart from some other ancient literature and ancient wisdom writings that we have from Egypt and other places around the area. The father and the uh, the mother are mentioned here. So the woman is seen to be on par with giving instruction just like the man is which is interesting. Now, note also, this is an ideal situation where you have a father and you have a mother and they both love the Lord. They're both people of the covenant. They're both people who love, uh, love God's word and they are giving instruction that's in line with that. This is not just an unqualified, you have to listen to your father or mother no matter what they tell you to do. The illustration I've used with my worldview students on occasion talking about this idea of authority is if your mom pulls up outside of the gas station in the minivan, hands you a fake gun, and says, go get the money. I think at that point, you have an obligation to say, I'm going to obey God rather than man at this point. I'm not going to listen to them. There's a higher authority. So this is really an ideal world where the father and the mother are giving godly instruction. And this is, uh, speaks to a certain social structure that's at play. It's amazing how often we figure out that our parents were actually right. Has anybody else had that experience as you grow up? This quote has been attributed to Mark Twain. I don't know if Mark Twain actually said this. I've tried to source it, but I, I can't source it to Mark Twain. But it sounds like something Mark Twain would say. He said this, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. (laughs) I mean, looks like something a guy like that would say, doesn't it? We all laugh because we know there's a ring of truth to that, isn't there? We start to realize, well, maybe, maybe they actually know a little bit more than I thought. You can see the progression that's going on here. Many people think that the Proverbs were written specifically for instruction in the royal family, just like Solomon watched his father David. Solomon prayed for wisdom. God gave him wisdom. And he's passing this wisdom down because he knows his sons, one of them, Rehoboam in particular at the end, is going to step into this kingly role. And he needs a lot of wisdom. And so part of what's going on is this is royal training. Now, it obviously has application all over the place to all of us. You need this type of wisdom, and you can see the progression. Parents feel this tension, don't we? And I know we've got the full gambit in here today. We've got some that are just starting out. You've got little ones, or maybe just little ones on the way. And then there's others, and your kids are long gone out of the house, empty nesting at this point. Some of you have hit that cycle where you're re-nesting again with, you know, the return later in life, regardless of however, uh, whatever situation you're in. You can see this progression. The father and mother, they're pouring into their kids, but then something's going to happen. 
they're gonna have to go out and make their own decisions. And they gotta, they gotta be ready for these sinners that are gonna try to pull them away. So there's really two things that, two arguments that he makes here. It's the classic carrot and the stick argument. How do you motivate somebody to do something? Well, you can incentivize good behavior. Hey, do this, I'll give you this. Or you can disincentivize bad behavior. Do this and I'll do this to you. Consequence versus reward. And actually both are built into the way this proverb is written. And the reason I say that is this first word, verse eight. Hear my son, your father's instruction Some of you may be looking at a translation of the Bible that actually says discipline. There's a negative consequence to not following. And so this is the stick part. You're gonna go that way and instruction's gonna discipline you. But then also look at verse nine. For they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. This wisdom, if you'll just grab onto it, it's beautiful. It's ornamental. It's this jewelry that you get to walk around with. So that's the appeal. Be careful, hold on to this wisdom because there's gonna be people coming and they're gonna try to tempt you to walk in a different direction. Profile of a fool. The fool rejects instruction, whereas the wise one receives, embraces that instruction. Next, to look at verse 10. Profile of a fool, he has bad friends. Verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. This is a pretty interesting thing that's going on here. I noted the progression. He's now being enticed by sinners. And the royal parents are feeling this. Interestingly, we don't have time to explore this too much, But after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam comes into power, and there's an immediate big judicial issue that needs to be dealt with there in Israel. And Rehoboam does this. This is from 1 Kings 12, 6 through 8. You can go back and read that later. I'll just read you the conclusion. It says this, this Rehoboam, but he abandoned the counsel that the old man gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. Rehoboam, at the, when he gets this big opportunity as the king, he leaves the counsel of those who are giving him wise counsel, and he joins with his friends, the younger people who wanted him to go the wrong way. Rehoboam fails in this. These sinners, this is extreme language. If they entice you, If they say, come let us lie and wait for blood and ambush the innocent without reason. This sounds very extreme. And this would be fairly easy, I think, for most people to walk away from just like this. What if one of your friends comes up to you, let's take one of our teenagers here this morning, and say, hey man, um, you wanna come hang out with us tonight? We're gonna find some vulnerable and innocent people. We're gonna beat them and take their money. You wanna come? I think that's a, most people would, hopefully, say no, that's a terrible plan. Not gonna do that. How do people get in this situation, though? Most people that join a gang, they didn't start out like this. They started out looking for some community. We are communal beings. We are made for friendships. We are made for community. It's interesting. I read a little bit 
this week on just the nature of gangs and how they work, and because this is really a gang that's being talked about. Maybe not in that particular vocabulary, but that's kind of the idea. You have this group of people that's prowling around, taking advantage of others, and there's a community feel to it. And what's interesting is there's the moral code even built into a gang type of relationship. And these people, they long for community, long for a sense of belonging. It's pretty amazing how strong that pull can be, even to do terrible and horrible things. And you see what happens as well. You get around the wrong group of friends. Many of you can testify to this at some point in your life. Maybe it's even now. You get around the wrong group of friends and you find yourself saying things that you never thought you'd say. You find yourself thinking things you never thought you'd think. You find yourself doing things, going places that you never on your own would do. Has anybody else had that experience? And it has such a strong impact and pull on us. That's why Paul, quoting one of the writers of the first century, says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. It will. You'll eventually have to flex on your morals to hang out with these types of people. If you want to be a fool, pick foolish friends. You'll be there in no time. Hang out with them. Let them influence you. Listen to their counsel and wisdom. That is the road that you are on. This group is up to no good. They're lying in wait, they ambush their victims, and they steal what they want. So profile of a fool, they have... They reject the instruction that they've been given. They have bad friends that are pulling them in the wrong direction. And then next, they have wrong goals. They have wrong goals. Look at what they're after. They say in verse 12, uh, 13, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Let us throw in our lot among us. We'll have one purse. Wrong goals. They're looking for shortcuts. This is the get-rich-quick scheme. Hey, why would you go work hard, go to school, get a job, save your money? Just look for a shortcut. Robberies were a major issue then, just like they are now. You all know, if you've been in the city a while, or any city really, maybe you're new to this area, but the principle still applies. There's certain places that you go, and there's certain places you really shouldn't go by yourself, and you should kind of watch where you end up driving or where you end up walking because there's certain people that will take advantage of you, especially if you're by yourself and they'll try to rob you. They'll try to take what you have. Unfortunately, it still happens. In the ancient world, it was the same way. In fact, they were a little more vulnerable uh, in many cases than we were, which is why you kind of stay in groups and really hope for the best sometimes when you're traveling. And there would, uh, especially with the terrain there being mountainous, there were certain pinch points where people, if you were traveling from one city to the next, you would have to go through. And the robbers, the bad people, would sit up on the edges and they would hide in the rocks and then wait and then come down and ambush these people and take what they wanted. As I was thinking about this and thinking about the terrain, I couldn't help but think about Star Wars and the sand people. Yeah, they kind of sit on those pinch points and just wait on this little band to come through. And then, you know, a group jumps in front and a group jumps in the back. And what are you going to do? Although Boba Fett found out they're not quite as bad as we thought. All right. These Tusken Raiders, they're actually, they're just trying to make a living too. Maybe not. You get the idea. These people, they don't, they don't want to go through life and they don't want to take the hard road. They don't want to go get a legitimate career. They just want to go steal some stuff. And whoever they have to flatten in the process 
in order to get what they want, they're willing to do it. They have completely wrong goals. Rather than wanting to work hard, rather than wanting to have an honest vocation, they just want to steal. They're also very short-sighted. They don't think about the long-term consequences. You know, if you hang around people like this that are just out to go take plunder, they're out to go steal some things, you probably, at night when you're plotting your next place and next person that you're going to go rob, you're probably not thinking about, hey, what's your three to five year plan? What are your long-term goals? Where do you see yourself going? You're not thinking that way. You're just thinking about the immediate. I want this thing. I'm going to go get this thing. Whoever I have to take out to get that, that's what I'm going to do. This is exactly the problem with these bad friends. Verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. And then 17, for in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. He says eventually it's going to cost them their lives. Let me show you a little something that's going on in the text here. This is a, it's a Hebrew tool called a chiasm. And basically, all a chiasm means is a fancy word that just means the main point's in the middle, all right? We write a little differently. You typically put your main point as a thesis sentence at the top. In Hebrew poetry, sometimes they write with, and the main point's really in the middle. Verse 15, it would be sort of like you taking that and underlining it, highlighting it, circling it. This is the main point. So everything he said in verses 8 down through 14 build to the main point, and then everything that comes after that in this immediate section is bouncing off of the main point. This is the main deal. Don't be like these people. Don't be like them. We're introduced to a word here that's very interesting too. They are... Uh, they are not to follow these people. Uh, the, it was on this, this screen, actually. Avoid the way. Uh, we're introduced for the first time to this word, derek, in the, uh, in the Hebrew. It means a path, a well-worn path. Do not follow their way. He's not talking necessarily just about a one-time decision here. He's talking about somebody who has a path, a way about them. Don't follow these people. Be a different kind of person. Then they start to, the argument starts to gear towards the future. Verse 17, for in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Now, what's going on here? What's, what's up with the net being spread and the birds watching? There's a couple of different ways that this could be understood. I think the main point is clear enough, though. As most of you know, I like to, I love the outdoors. I love to hunt and fish. And if you've ever gone hunting, it's, I think every hunter's had this experience. If you go out to a golf course, the ducks are like, hey, morning, what's up? Got any crackers? Um, How's your game? And they're just hanging up, hanging out, walking up to you, absolutely zero fear. If you go out to the middle of nowhere and you're sitting in a duck blind and, and there's birds flying over and you move the wrong direction, they're like, oh, we're not going anywhere over there. I'm like, you've just been like hanging out by the interstate. And, you know, I move my coffee cup and you, you know, you lose it. I think he's kind of referencing something like that. Invent, you, you don't spread your net out so that the, the prey can see what you're up to. You wouldn't do that. You're foolish if you do that. But these people do that and they don't even realize it. 
They don't even realize it. Notice again the relationship. Go back to this slide for a second. The relationship. They were the ones who were ambushing the innocent, but what are they doing in reality? They're ambushing themselves. They're gonna fall in the hole that they actually dug. We'll see that again in Proverbs also. Don't be like that. You're too short-sighted. You don't realize that you are digging your own grave. They set an ambush. Such are the ways, verse 19, such such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. You don't realize what's gonna happen. The best biblical example of this is the story of Esther. Many of you are familiar with that story. You have Haman who hates the Jewish people and he has this elaborate plot to get Mordecai hung. Unbeknownst to him, the new queen happens to be Jewish and ends up saving the day at the end. Haman has this massive gallows built that he was gonna hang Mordecai on and spoiler alert, at the end of the story, Haman's the one who actually ends up being hung himself. Haman is a perfect example of what we just read here. They don't realize that they are ambushing themselves. He was trying to take out the innocent man, Mordecai, and the the story's funny. If you actually just read through Esther, all of the things that keep happening to Mordecai, Haman's like, I'm gonna get Mordecai. King's like, I wanna honor somebody. Haman thinks, yeah, what would you do, Haman, if you wanted to really honor somebody? Well, I would do this. Okay, do that for Mordecai. And he's like, what? Seriously? He thought he was gonna be the one that's gonna be exalted. And then, of course, it ends with this incredible poetic justice at the end where Haman is the one who ends up taking this punishment or this um, victim. Uh, He ends up being the one who's hung instead of Mordecai. It's an incredible story. So these people, they reject. uh, They're short-sighted. They don't see what's coming. They don't realize that they, in fact, are are working to hang themselves, just like Haman. Verse 20, I wanna read now, verses 20 down through 33, and this is really one continuous thought, and it's sort of an interlude and expansion also of the previous section. It says, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I've called and you refuse to listen. You stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and they despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. The profile of the fool. This fool rejects instruction. He has bad friends around him. His wrong goals. He's short-sighted. 
doesn't think about things like eternity, and they also completely reject reason. Does this make any sense? Does it make any sense just to thumb your nose at God, his design order, his wisdom, does it make any sense? No, you're completely rejecting reason. Verse 20, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice at the head of the noisy street. And then verse 22, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Now, I introduced you to a few characters in Proverbs last week. We have the young one, the simple or the naive, called all of those throughout the book, really referring to the same person. This young, simple, naive one is typically going to be young. It doesn't necessarily always mean young, but typically they're going to choose a path one day. They're going to choose a path of wisdom or a path of folly. And they will either become a fool or they will become wise. And so I had some fantastic artwork. I'm going to add to that this week. We'll see how this story develops. We also have the scoffer, all right? So we're introduced to these three people, this third category of person here, or fourth rather. You have the simple one, their choices, influences, and friends. They choose the path of folly. A scoffer is like platinum level fool, all right? It's like fool, fool 2.0, fully committed fool at this point. And that's the scoffer. They're not only not making wise decisions, they, are, they hate anything that's of God. This is the scoffer. And he, we're introduced here to this person. They're completely rejecting reason. You're not listening to anybody. The question is asked rhetorically, how long, O oh simple ones, we love being simple? Why do you want to stay in that state? Scoffers, why are you delighting? Why do you hate knowledge? It's a lament. You've chosen your path. There's nothing I can do about it now other than warn those who would come behind you not to be this type of person. There's two voices in the book of Proverbs. There's Lady Wisdom and there's Madam Folly. And both of these are personified in the book of Proverbs and calling out. You're gonna listen to one of these two voices. Don't listen to Madam Folly. Listen to Lady Wisdom. She's trying to reach him. She's standing in the market. She's crying out. Wisdom is available. Stop doing things that aren't wise. But they won't. They completely reject reason. Lastly, I want to spend a few minutes talking about this because this is a really significant and, if we're honest, a little bit scary truth from the Bible. And I want to, I want to be careful to cross-reference this in a couple of places and just show you what the Bible actually says about this. The fool rejects wisdom, and then eventually the fool himself is rejected. You have your day. You have your time. And then suddenly, say, fine. Parents use devices like this sometimes to teach our kids, don't we? Your kid wants something. I want this. And they ask and ask and ask and ask. And then finally, as a parent, depending on what it is, if they're asking for the knife off the kitchen counter, not a good idea. But if they ask and ask and ask, you finally give them that thing to help them to realize it's not what you thought it was. And it's a way to teach and to learn. This wisdom has called out again and again and again. And then finally wisdom says, you know what? We're going to have Burger King Day. Have it your way. Fine. You can have it. And so what we have here is the story 
of one who has finally come to the end and wisdom takes their hand off and says, okay, fine, go ahead. Proverbs is full of this model. We'll develop more a little bit later. It's called the character consequence idea. If you're this type of person, you get this type of result. And that's how it tends to work. The character consequence model. I wanna talk about this on a couple of different levels here. This, what do we do and how do we live with wisdom and what do we do with those who reject wisdom? One of the questions is, is it ever too late to start making wise choices? And the obvious answer at one level, level one, is of course it's not ever too late. The right thing to do is always the right thing right now, all right? Make the right decision right now. That's always the right thing to do. But there's another sense in which you can do the right thing right now and there's still consequences of what you did yesterday. We understand that. And this is why I've titled this the way that I have, Wisdom, Folly, and Compounding Interest. Have you ever noticed that wisdom and folly, they compound, don't they? A series of wise decisions leads you to one place. A series of foolish decisions leads you to a completely different place. This is just life. It's just the way it is. At 60, you can't start over at 25 to save for retirement. It is what it is at that point. It's never a bad idea to start, but you can't reset the clock. Your body is a little bit more forgiving, but you can't undo what you did to it in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s. You can't undo that. It's more forgiving. You can perhaps reset the clock a little bit more there. So it's always the right thing to do to make a wise decision, but there's consequences as well. This functions also on a spiritual level. Notice that this person has rejected over and over and over again. Look at what it says, verse 23. You've turned at my reproof. Verse 24, I've called, you refuse to listen. I stretched out my hand, no one is heeded. You've ignored my counsel. You didn't listen to my reproof. There's a series of admonitions. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And they just simply won't listen. Just this morning in my, some of us are doing a a Bible in a year plan. And I noticed this truth in Psalm 106, which was part of the plan that I was reading. Psalm 106 says this, but they soon forgot his works. He gave them what they asked. Israel rejected God over and over. And then it says he did what? Gave them what they asked. Reminds me of when Israel rejected God as their ruler. And what did they ask for? A king. In fact, it says they asked for a king like all the other nations. What did God give them? A king that was like a king from all the other nations. It says, fine, you can have it. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Implication is he may not always be near. It's been a while since we talked about the Chronicles of Narnia, so it's probably time. The first book in the Chronicles series, chronologically at least, it was the last one written, is uh, called The Magician's Nephew. If you're not familiar with that, it's sort of the origin story of Chronicles of Narnia. And there's a fantastic scene, it actually spans a few chapters, where the creation of Narnia is taking place. And there's this one character who's the classic modernist named Uncle Andrew. 
Uncle Andrew is probably my favorite character in the Narnia series, not because he's a likable guy, he's really not, but he's so well-developed. The world is being formed by Aslan's song, and as Aslan sings, the trees are growing and the plants, and it's sprouting, and just beautiful imagery of the creation story. But Uncle Andrew is standing off to the side, and Uncle Andrew won't hear it. As he hears the lion singing, he says, lions don't sing, lions don't sing, lions don't sing. Now, he knew exactly what he was hearing, but he convinced himself that lions just don't sing. I'm not seeing what I think I'm seeing, so therefore, I'm going to reject it over and over and over again. It comes to a head here, where we're told, and the longer and the more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring, because that's what lions do. My favorite line from Narnia, probably. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. These people, they reject wisdom, they reject wisdom, they reject wisdom. Finally, wisdom takes the hand off and says, okay, fine, you can have it. This is a scary teaching from the Bible, isn't it? I don't know if you're an Uncle Andrew out there. You've heard the gospel again and again and again. I don't know if you're dealing with one of those in your life. You've heard it. They've heard it again and again and again. But we can rest assured that one day, God has a day, and he says, you know what? That's enough. That's just enough. And they have sealed themselves in their rebellion against the Lord. This is all over the Bible, actually. Just before his crucifixion, uh, Jesus gave a couple of ominous warnings. He said in John seven thirty four, you will seek me, And you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. I think he's specifically talking about the resurrection and the ascension here. But, next chapter, he says this. So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. You're done. That's it. Wisdom is taking their hand off of you. The call of God is taking their hand off of you. Wisdom is calling out to us in the streets loudly today. Don't reject it. Don't reject it. Seek him while he may be found. Our definition of wisdom, again, is the art of living well, good, and godly, practically, ethically, theologically. Let's talk about these at all three of these levels. Practically, the call of wisdom is for us to make good decisions, no matter what that is. Make better decisions now. Back in my uh, flag football coaching days, I had a pretty illustrious career. I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> I used to ask the team after something, a big play would happen um, that wasn't in our favor, so we gave up a touchdown or something happened, interception. I would ask them the question, what's the most important play? And it took them a little while throughout the season, but by the end of it, they would always say right back to me, the next play. Because that's what I wanted them thinking about. Like, you can't dwell on the pick you just threw. You can't dwell on the pass you just dropped. What I need you to do is focus on your job next. And I would say the same thing for us, just in terms of practical wisdom. I don't know what kind of mess you've made in your life. Maybe you've made great decisions again and again and again. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. But I would just encourage you with this. The next decision you make is the most important one because it's the one that you can control. Make a good decision next. Ethically, it's never the wrong time to do the right thing, always. Maybe you are knee-deep 
in some shady dealing right now and you don't really know how to get out of it, I don't know that I can unsort all of that for you, but let me just encourage you, make the right ethical decision today. Trust the Lord that he's going to provide you a way out of whatever spiderweb you've gotten yourself tangled into. Practically, make a good decision, ethically. Make the right decision, what you know to be right. And then at the godliness level, the fear of the Lord. You may have heard the gospel story a hundred times or a thousand times or two thousand times, I don't know. But if you have never embraced the story as your own, repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, today is the day. Don't harden your heart again to the Lord. Seek him while he may be found. Because if you're just waiting around and thinking, well, one day maybe I'll seek him in the future, he may not be found then. And you need, to, you need to realize that. Life is short. We have no idea how much time we have even on this planet. Seek him while he may be found. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your truth. This is such a profound section of scripture. And we see the full human experience. We see parents that are pouring into their children. They're imploring them to make good and wise decisions. And we see that oftentimes people fall into the wrong crowd and it's not as if it's the crowd's fault necessarily. They're still responsible for their own actions, of course, but we see that the influence can sometimes be so overwhelming that people fall prey and they do things and they say things that they would never do on their own. Of course, they're responsible, but we also recognize the pull and we recognize the power of having good friends around us. Lord, I pray for others in here. Maybe they've heard the gospel many, many, many times and they've never embraced it for their own. They've never recognized Jesus as the Messiah and the Lord of their lives. I pray that today they wouldn't continue to harden their hearts against you. I pray that we would be people who act on what we know to be true. As James says, we are to be doers of the word, not just those who hear. So I pray, Lord, that we would all take this to heart, make good, sound, wise decisions today, starting with our embrace of Jesus as our Lord and our Messiah and King. We praise things in Christ's name. Amen.